Welcome to London Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. The latest book from Jeff Goodell is about the extreme ways in which our planet is changing. It's about why spring is coming a few weeks earlier, fall a few weeks later, and the impact that will have on everything from our food supply to disease outbreaks. The book, The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet, is published by Little Brown and brings Rolling Stone contributing editor Jeff Goodell to our show now. Welcome. Hi. Happy to be here. Jeff, our planet has just experienced its hottest week ever recorded, and, and there's been serious flooding throughout the United States and other parts of the world. Should I assume that this is the new norm unless we don't take immediate coordinated action globally? Well, um, I, I, you know, I don't like the, the phrase the new norm, the new normal, because, because the, the essential fact about what's happening to our climate right now is that um, the rules are changing in a very dramatic way. And to suggest that there's a new normal suggests that there's a sort of a, a kind of different kind of stable climate that we're moving into. But in fact, what's really happening is as we heat up the atmosphere, as we burn more fossil fuels, as we put more CO2 into the atmosphere, it is changing the atmospheric physics and the way the, the, way, um, the uh, heat is distributed on our planet. And basically all the rules are, are off. When no one understands exactly how fast, um, how extreme heat waves can get, how fast sea level rises uh, it could potentially rise. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of science, a lot of climate models, but you know, there's a lot of unpredictability in this new climate era that we're moving into. And I think what we're seeing this week with the floods and the heat waves and everything is emblematic of that. You write, uh, quoting, "All living things share one simple fate. If the temperature they're used to, what scientists sometimes call their Goldilocks zone, rises too far, too fast, they." die. And you open your book with a discussion of the Goldilocks zone. What is it? The Goldilocks zone is a phrase that um, scientists who look for life on other planets um, use most often. It, 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 it defines a planet where, um, you know, it's not too warm, not too cold, kind of just right, like the, like the mush in the um, Goldilocks fable. And they define that by, you know, if it's if the uh, is the presence of liquid water, if it's too cold, the water is frozen. If it's too hot, it's vaporized and it doesn't exist. So um, the important idea about this Goldilocks zone is that, you know, we on Earth here, all living things on Earth have have evolved over the last couple hundred thousand years in a in a very stable climate. We all every living thing, humans, plants, animals, you know, we've all had a, a. It's been it's been pretty stable. We've had our own Goldilocks zone that we've all um, evolved in, and we're beginning to move out of that Goldilocks zone now. And and the implications for that are um, quite profound because you know, as everyone knows, we can handle cooler days and warmer days, but the envelope for the kinds of changes that we can deal with are is limited. You know, everyone knows if you ever, you know, we have not, our body temperature is 98.6. If your body temperature goes to 101, something's wrong. If it goes to 104, you're in the hospital. And so, um, you know, these changes in the in temperature um, 
sort of envelopes that we can live in is really is really crucial to life. It was reported in 2019 that more people died from extreme heat than from gun violence or illegal drugs. Has that trend continued? Yes, it has. And, and although you say you know, extreme the, heat conditions are becoming more democratic, they are because more and more people from various um, sort of walks of life and various places are becoming um, vulnerable to them. Right. So, for example, the the 2021 heat wave that hit the Pacific Northwest that killed around a thousand people. I mean, no one imagined that there was going to be a temperature, a heat wave of 120 degrees in the Pacific Northwest. That was just like snow in the Sahara or something. It was sort of unimaginable. And now we're and seeing temperatures would... like that all over the country. Right. And but then the problem with these, you know, extreme heat waves here, appearing in places where they haven't um, traditionally had you know, these, these kinds of extremities is no one's prepared for it. Nobody in the Pacific Northwest has air conditioning. Nobody knows how to handle heat. Nobody knows what to do. Nobody knows who to call. Nobody knows how to take, you know, the importance of taking breaks and things like that from outdoor work. You know, um, I've lived through for the last couple of weeks, the, these extreme heat in, in Texas. And even in Texas where, you know, people are used to heat, when the temperatures get too high, things really start to fall apart. Don't all but the poorest people in this country have air conditioning? Although you include stories of people who live in places where they cannot access air conditioning. Yeah, I mean, the idea that, you know, we don't need to worry about this too much because, you know, we all have air conditioning and we're all just going to kind of turn up the air conditioning and be fine is like a kind of profoundly, a profound misunderstanding of, of the scale of the problem and what we're, we're dealing with here. Um, for one thing, as you pointed out, a lot of people, billions of people around the world do not have access to air conditioning and will not for the foreseeable future. Secondly, a lot of people that I visited during the reporting of the book, they may have an air conditioner or a window unit or something, but it's so expensive to run or they have so little money that they you know, can only run it for an hour or so a day. So they're constantly making a kind of arbitrage between having enough money to buy dinner and have enough money to keep themselves cool during the day. And, 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 and also, you know, this heat affects not just us in our kind of air conditioned bubble, but all the plants around us, all the animals around us, the organisms, fish in the, in the seas, the food, the crops that we grow for food. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of time looking at agriculture in Texas where corn is at the, threshold of what it can handle with heat. You can't air condition a cornfield, right? Mm -hmm. And the final part of this air conditioning myth that I really want to address is, is, is air conditioning works fine if you have it, as long as your power it works, right? But as these extreme heat events get more and more extreme, the power demand gets higher and higher. And one of the infrastructure experts that I talked to during my book talked about the inevitability of a heat Katrina. In other words, a kind of blackout during a heat wave in Phoenix or in Austin or in Dallas or in Houston or in Miami. Because they use have... huge amounts of energy, which uh, crashes power grids and causes blackouts. Right. right. I mean, you know, as the power that, demand that surge. That would mean but... that modern ways of dealing with rising temperatures can actually contribute to more irreversible warming. Right. Absolutely. 
And, you know, one of the things that we're seeing that we saw in Texas a couple of weeks ago during these extreme heat waves that we had here was the importance of renewable energy on the grid, because we have, you know, Texas is a big fossil fuel state, but the sort of real secret of Texas is that clean energy is booming here. And about 25% of the power on the grid during this heat wave was from solar. And solar is much more reliable during extreme heat events than sort of gas or other kinds of thermal energy because of the the way the heat impacts you know the steel and the structures of the of the power plants and stuff so the the shift towards renewable energy and batteries and things like that is really important in thinking about how to deal with these extreme heat events but you note and i'm quoting even if by some miracle we went to zero emissions of carbon dioxide tomorrow it would not cool off the atmosphere it would only stop the warming Right. So that's a, I'm really glad you brought that up. That's a really important point that doesn't get stressed enough. So I, I grew up in California, for example. And when I grew up, there was, you know, we had smog in, in the Bay Area. And I, I couldn't see the mountains across a few miles away uh, on the other side of the valley. And then stricter air pollution standards came in. Catalytic converters became more widespread on cars. The air got cleaned up. And a lot of places in, the, in America... Um, a similar thing happened. You know, the environmental movement got started in the 70s, largely because of dirty air and air pollution. And in many cities in America now, um, because of scrubbers on power plants and catalytic converters on cars, the air is much, much better. But CO2 from burning fossil fuels is not like that. CO2, when you burn coal or gas or oil, it creates CO2, which goes into the atmosphere and stays there for thousands of years. It does not go away. And so at, at the, even if we stop burning fossil fuels tomorrow, if we all decided to turn our SUVs and ride skateboards, we would still, the, the level of CO2 in the atmosphere would stay what it is now. And that is what controls the temperature. And it would take thousands of years for that CO2 to uh to finally kind of go away. So for all intents and purposes, even if we go to zero emissions tomorrow with CO2, we are stuck with these higher temperatures and this different climate that we're living in, and which does not which does not mean that we shouldn't cut CO2 immediately as fast as possible, because the less we put in to the atmosphere, the less the warming will be. But it's really important to understand that even if we, by some miracle, you know, stopped emissions tomorrow, we are not going back the climate that you and I grew up in. But as you point out, you live in Texas, uh, and despite uh, pulling back on the reliance on fossil fuels, isn't your state's power grid nearing another breaking point as a result of this year's summer heat? That's what well, I that's what the it, paper. Yeah, I mean, there, you know, the grid in Texas, you know, we had a massive blackout um, during a, a cold spell a couple of years ago. I, I was living through that. We you know we had five days without power. Um, and the grid in Texas is at its limits. Texas is growing fast. There's a lot of additional demand. Um, there's no question that, you know, the grid was not built for the climate that we live in or in Texas's case for the kind of power consumption that is being put on the grid and the the grid in texas is different than the rest of the of the country they have we have our own grid that is sort of isolated so we can't kind of share power across the country the way that 
uh, people who live in every other state does. Um, so yeah, the as we you know try to air condition our way out of this sort of heat nightmare that we're um, rapidly sliding into, that puts more and more strain on the grid, and you know that becomes more and more dangerous for this sort of heat Katrina that I mentioned before. It's also become a political issue in your state and uh, in other states and in Congress as well. It's a huge political issue. Be Go ahead. Did we lose and, you? And, you know, and they don't want the, you know, they want to con us to continue using fossil fuels sort of as long as possible. And so there's a lot of money and political interest, you know, against the shift away from oil and gas and coal and, you know, a lot of stalling of um, investments into these new energy sources. But the interesting thing is it's the economic war is over. Cheap, you know, renewable power is cheaper in every place in the world, not just Texas, than fossil fuel power. It's now become a culture war. You know, it's been it's now part of the, you know, woke wars versus, you know, uh, liberals versus conservatives. Yeah, Donald Trump made fun of the windmills. Exactly. Exactly. My guest on today's London Low Pit at Large is Jeff Goodell. His latest book, The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet, published by Little Brown. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. You report that human bodies aren't equipped to deal with extreme temperatures. You write, our, I'm quoting, our heart starts beating faster and faster as it's frantically trying to push blood around to the surface of our skin so that it can be cooled off. The lining of your intestines begins to fall apart. As the heat rises inside your body at a certain point, the actual membranes of your cell begin to melt and your body really begins to unravel from the inside. Wow. And that's happening to a lot of people? Well, um, you know, th that scenario that, uh, that you just read from my book, which is, you know, that's what happens in extreme heat conditions when you're in, um, you know, when you have heat stroke and beyond when your body temperature rises about of, above about 105 degrees. But, you know, what happens, what, what heat does to your body is really not pretty. And um, it's really a fundamental kind of unraveling of our sort of metabolic system. I mean, you know, our bodies have a relatively narrow range of temperatures that we function in. Our body temperature needs to stay, you know, our 98.6, above, start getting above 100 and you call the doctor. And, you know, we are very kind of have a very refined um, heat mechanism that, you know, allows our body to kind of constantly and, un and unconsciously regulate our temperature. But, you know, we only have one way to do it, and that is sweat, right? We are unique in the animal world for having the kind of sweat system that we have. And when we get hot, what happens is, you know, our body, our, our, our heart starts pumping faster and it starts taking the blood away from our internal organs and toward the surface of our skin so that, and then our sweat uh, glands start pumping water out and that evaporation takes the heat away, and that's how we dissipate heat from our bodies. 
And that works as long as a you have enough water and you've been drinking enough water, you don't become dehydrated, so you don't, you're not sweating. And also that you're in a kind of conditions where that sweat can evaporate. And so this is one of the reasons why wet heat, humid heat is is more dangerous than dry heat, because um, as most people know, you go to the desert and it's 100 degrees, you sweat, it evaporates immediately, it's, it does a pretty good job of cooling off. You go to, you know, Miami or the Philippines or something like that, and it's 100 degrees and the heat index is really high, your sweat doesn't evaporate, the cooling mechanism doesn't work as well, and your body starts to overheat, and that's when you get into trouble. And you say deaths caused by extreme heat aren't always easy to discern because people suffer heart attacks and other conditions that are caused by heat exposure. Yeah, I mean, heat is very different than, say, you know, a gunshot wound or something like that. You know, you know, um, there's no telltale trace of, um, you know, a heat stroke other than, you know, what because of what basically happens during a heat stroke is, in you know, is is your your heart begins to give out and so many people who die of um, extreme heat die of some version of a of a heart attack and oh. even people with you know with really strong hearts you know as the, your body begins to sort of unravel in the in the uh, way that you just read from my book a few minutes ago it's really hard to to trace that um and so a lot of heat death goes um un unreported because people just think that they you know died because of a heart attack or or because something they like were that. old or they were sick in other ways exactly right and he and, will, and he, will then call out the most vulnerable people exactly heat is very predatory in that sense right if you're um you know if you have any kind of heart condition if you have any kind of circulatory problems if you're taking certain kinds of medication that Im that that impact your um, circulatory system, you're much more vulnerable than um, you know a 25 year old person whose heart is in great shape and you know is um, thin and trim. But um, but ultimately, you know, so it does go after the vulnerable people first. But ultimately, it goes after us all. You know, I mean, I. I came very close to a, a severe heat stroke when I was, you know, in really great shape. I was hiking up a volcano in Nicaragua and, um, you know, I started to get, you know, it was a really hot day. It was really humid. I was exercising hard as I was climbing, you know, just up this steep trail. And I became, you know, very, very dizzy. My heart started racing in a way that I was really scared me. My body just started drenching water. I had no idea what was happening to me. But I know now that I was on the verge of a heat stroke. And um, mm -hmm. so it can happen to even the fittest people who have plenty of water with them and things if you're in the right kind of or the wrong kind of conditions. And uh, are we likely to start seeing similar problems in more northern cities uh, where a typical summer day temperature in Chicago or Boston will rise from 90 degrees Fahrenheit to 110 degrees Fahrenheit? Well, you know, one of the things that I explored in my book was I was really interested in talking to, you know, the smartest climate scientists that I could track down about, you know, given where we are today with, you know, the kind of CO2 in the atmosphere, not talking about future warming, just where we are today, what are the limits of how hot it can get in a particular place? 
there's been a 70 degree heat wave, 70 degrees above normal in, in Antarctica, for example. Um, is it possible to have a heat wave in New York City that is, you know, 70 degrees hotter than, you know, like 150 degrees or something like that? And basically, the the response is, no, we're not going to see a 70 degree higher than normal heat wave in a place like New York. But what exactly the upper limits are, no one can really say. I mean, no one. Expected... Well, it's gone over 100 during my lifetime. So, yeah. I mean, nobody expected 121 degrees in British Columbia as in as in 2021. So this is what I mean when I say that we're talking, we're we're entering into a new climate era where we don't know what the rules are and the the what we might experience. I mean, just look at what's happening in our world right now. Look at look at like what's happening up in Vermont and New York. These incredible you know incredible amounts of rainfall. Look at these heat extremes we've had and we're having in the Southwest. The water temperature, you know, in in the in the bay outside of Miami right now is 97 degrees. I mean, that is hot tub temperature. You know, this is the kind of thing that that is, you know, worrying scientists very profoundly because it is suggesting that the sensitivity of the climate is much higher than they sort of we're able to model given certain levels of CO2 emissions. So in other words, we're getting the trouble is coming faster and faster than, than, than they anticipated. In your book, you describe how the impact of uh, our planet's warming can have on individual lives. You tell a number of upsetting stories. Uh, what about Sebastian Perez? Who was he? Sebastian Perez was um, uh, a a work a man who lived in uh, Guatemala has he had a he had was recently married there he um, was an agricultural worker he really wanted to save some money and build a house um, with his wife they wanted to have a child and because the economy was not in great shape there like many other people he decided to come to the United States. Yeah, he was working in a nursery there and trying to make money uh, to go back to Guatemala. And, um, you know, he have, he was used to heat. He was came from a hot place. But even he misunderstood uh, and, and underestimated the dangers of, of working on a hot day. There are no federal or state uh, worker protection laws for heat exposure um, in Oregon. Some have passed since then. But there are no federal laws protecting workers that demanding water breaks or shade breaks. And basically, he was working in a field on a 110 degree day. And uh, at the end of the day, his farm, his other colleagues uh, went to find him to uh, kind of wrap up their day. And he was laying dead in the field um, from, you know, a heat stroke. Because um, the temperature had climbed to 107 degrees. Right. And so, you know, it, it, it it's a it's a tragic story in many dimensions but it's it's really tragic because it is first of all an example of you know the vulnerability of people who are working outdoors um it's an example of our misunderstanding of the real risks and threat of extreme heat and most importantly it's a great example of the the lack of any kind of worker protection or federal uh, worker uh, you know sort of heat laws like we have in other kinds of dangerous conditions 
Um, there are all kinds of laws restricting, you know, how you can operate around uh, uh, in dangerous jobs. But for heat, there's nothing. So what kind the, of what sort of legislation would you like to see uh, enacted to protect vulnerable outdoor workers from unsafe conditions or or all of us in general? Well, I mean, a great example of this was during the heat wave in Texas, you know, a couple of weeks ago, Governor Abbott um, signed legislation that forbade or forbid local ordinances from having um, mandating water breaks and shade breaks for workers, for construction workers in Texas. Forbade the them idea, from doing it? Yes. Was he you could hoping not, to kill people? Well, I mean, the idea was, you know, productivity and competitiveness, you know, that we need to have, we can't have our workers lollygagging around on a hot day. Everybody's got to be working really hard all the time. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a cruel and, you know, kind of, uh, barbaric, uh, act that governor Abbott, you know, passed there, but it's, it's emblematic of a, the, the you know, a lot of the workers who are outdoors, especially in Texas, you know, are migrant workers or Latinos, people that are not the sort of, you know, white Texan conservative voting bloc that support the governor. And, you know, they're just seen as um, dispensable. Well, if power goes out for long on a hot day, businesses shut down, schools close, and people die. So this is not just a negligible problem. Right. It's a huge problem. It's a huge problem for, uh, you know, our economy. It's a huge problem. I mean, for, if you if you don't care about the sort of human aspect of it, just from the economic aspect of it, you know, the issues are enormous. You know, I mean, here in Texas, you know, it's not difficult to admit. In fact, I've talked to public officials in Houston, for example, who said we're going to have it's so hot during the days now we're going to have to shift construction and other outdoor work only to nighttime. Hmm. And when we think about what the implications of that are, that's enormous. What happens when summer becomes, you know, a, the time of year when you cannot have outdoor work in, uh, in the South or in, in these hot, humid regions like Texas and Florida? I mean, just think about what that means for the, for the economy. I mean, that's, that's a huge, huge issue. And again, goes back to this Fake, I, you know, this false idea that we can just air condition our ways out of this. Well, won't hotter weather lead to a decline in food production, which will make feeding the increasing global population more difficult? Absolutely. I mean, a lot of crops are at their thermal limits right now, and you know, you know, this the um, these these extreme changes in climate have a big impact on what will grow where, and. Um, you know, you, it's, it's easy to imagine people think, oh, we're just going to, instead of growing corn in Iowa, we'll grow it in Michigan. But it's not that simple because of the soil conditions, because of the established farming practices, you know, all of that. And there's also the question of, you know, as, as you know, we have more and more sort of food shortages related to changing climate like heat. We have more and more people moving into different places. We have, you know, uh, mi migration, people moving to cooler places, animals moving, spreading diseases in different ways. I mean, this whole idea that, you know, heat is the engine of displacement um, in our world. And, you know, I think that grasping that big picture of how 
heat drives all living creatures to find their kind of comfort zone. And if it gets too hot, they move is, you know, really essential to understanding why I wrote this book about heat and why thinking about heat in a different way is so important. Is it one of the reasons we're seeing more wild animals like bears show up on people's houses? Well, I, I you know, uh, th there's a lot of things, you know, yeah. that are connected with that, you know, building closer into forests, mm. uh, you know, um, uh, you know, our access to, to, to wilderness. I mean, that, that, that goes into sort of more complicated land use and forest management patterns. I'm also. sorry I brought that up. But this yeah. is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. What can we do? What can we do? What can we do to stop this foolish plan going through? What can we do? I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Jeff Goodell. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing, The Heat Will Kill You, will kill you First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, and we thank you very much. And return now to Jeff Goodell. Uh, who is the author of seven books, or is this your eighth? No, this is number seven. This is number seven, okay. Uh, it's called The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet, and it is published by Little Brown. Um, now, does heat drive all other impacts of the climate crisis, like wildfires, which are now seasonal in California, and in, in California... The uh, the Northeast is getting less and less snow each winter. The ice sheets in the Arctic and Antarctic are melting fast. Is that all because of heat? Yeah, it is. Um, you know, I, I think that a lot of people think about heat waves and heat as just sort of another one of the kind of climate impacts. You know, we have drought, we have, uh, you know, increased rainfall, bigger storms um you know wildfires and, and heat is just like another one of the sort of catalog of misery that you know our warming planet is is bringing to us but um it's important to to grasp i think to, just to in the sense of exploring and thinking about the implications of rising heat to, to see that heat is the driver of all of this stuff it is because our our climate is getting hotter that all of these things are happening. For example, I went to Antarctica and I read about this in the book and just small changes in the um, ocean temperature in Antarctica, in Antarctica, just like one degrees, are, have huge implications for the stability of the Western Antarctic ice sheet, which have huge implications for New York sea level rise, for, Hawaii, uh, for, for Miami sea level rise, 
you know, they're driven by small, even small changes in temperature can have big implications. And, you know, the orange skies that, you know, we all, everyone on the East Coast experienced a few weeks ago because of the wildfires in Alberta, Canada, you know, those wildfires were made bigger, more intense because it's been hotter. And as it's, as it's been hotter, it sucks more moisture out of the ground. The, the trees are drier when they are sparked by lightning or by whatever it is that sparks them, they burn hotter and bigger. So, so, you know, these things are all connected, but they're also all driven by the rising temperatures on the planet. Don't we also face greater risks related to mosquito-borne and other infectious diseases as uh, temperatures rise? Yeah, I mean, the changes in, in disease patterns is really important, you know. Um, uh, like like humans, all animals seek out, you know, their kind of comfort zones. And the best example of the implications of that is is mosquitoes and how they are exquisitely se sensitive to changes in temperature. They will, uh, they're obviously, as anyone who's been around a mosquito knows, they are very mobile um, and they can easily move to sort of new areas. And one of the things that happens as our world heats up is that, you know, the mosquitoes, which are many of them carry diseases that um, are very unwelcome, like um, dengue fever and Zika. And um, just recently here in the in the south, um, you know, we've seen a reemergence of cases of malaria, which is um, carried by mosquitoes and, you know, has been eradicated in the U.S. for you know, decades. Um, it's still a huge problem in Africa. It kills 400,000 people or so a year, mostly children. But in the U.S., we've done a pretty good job of getting rid of it. But now, because partly because of the warming of the climate and, and the spread of these particular mosquitoes that, that carry malaria, we're seeing this reemergence. And it's the same thing true in, in New York with ticks, right? I mean, um, and Lyme disease. Lyme disease used to be, you know, pretty much... Uh, you know, started on Long Island and, and in the sort of Connecticut and in, in the uh, uh, in that region of 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 New England and has now moved up up through upstate New York, up into Vermont, into these places that have traditionally been too cool for ticks. But as they've as the as the temperature has warmed up, they're moving, and as they're moving, they're carrying these diseases with them. So it's a great example of the kind of implications of these temperature changes. And again, why this idea that we don't need to worry about heat because we're just going to air condition our way out of this is a really dangerous, you know, belief. If we don't stop burning fossil fuels within 50 years and temperatures keep rising during that time, won't parts of our planet become virtually uninhabitable? Yeah, I, 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 absolutely. I mean, you know, Maybe it depends how you think about it, right? I mean, first of all, it's going to happen a lot sooner than 50 years at the rate we're going. In fact, parts of our planet are already verging on uninhabitable for uh, humans that do not have, you know, access to air conditioning and power. I mean, obviously, you know, you can spend time on the moon, right? That's a pretty uninhabitable place if you have the right kind of spaceship and, you know, you have the right kind of equipment. I mean we humans can adapt to a lot of things. So 
the question of what the thermal limits are depends on kind of who you're talking about. You know, if you're a billionaire who can afford to import <coughs> food and wants for some reason to live that way and live in some kind of weird dome in the middle of, you know, a 150 degree desert, yes, you can survive. But for the masses of humanity who have traditionally lived in places, especially, you know, Middle East, Pakistan, even parts of Texas, frankly, um, you know, it's going to become increasingly difficult to live there and increasingly dangerous. And and it's going to shift how we think about where we live and how we live in the places that we live. But despite everything we've been saying, don't we still have to deal with climate change denial? I just read that a meteorologist in Iowa was getting death threats in response to his climate change warnings. Yeah, um, that's certainly true. You know, I mean, uh, there's certainly plenty of climate denial still out there. There's certainly plenty, just as there is, you know, the anti, a lot of anti-vaxxers who don't believe in the um, efficacy of vaccines. You know, we're never going to convince, there's people out there who don't believe in, you know, gravity. I mean, is there, there it, it, the, the idea that we're ever going to get any kind of unanimous um, kind of consent on the urgency of this is just, it's not going to happen. But I do think that, you know, the, be, partly because of what, even the kinds of things we've been seeing in the last few weeks, people are getting it. The, the, the out and out deniers, I think, are, um, are, are fading and, and, and diminishing. And I think now, Part of the problem is that is and part of the thing that I'm trying to communicate with this book and in and talking about this is the urgency of it. That these changes are happening, you know, quickly, and the sooner that we deal with them, you know, the better off we're going to be. I'm very optimistic that we can, you know, use this moment to build a better world, a healthier world. That there's a lot of good that will come out of this, but we really need to grasp the scale and scope of the problem. But we still, as I mentioned earlier, we still have a political issue. There are members of Congress from states that produce coal and oil who uh, who vote against any uh, bills that might change the way we're, we're doing things. Uh, how do we get past that? Do we just hope that they die off or get uh, or <laughs> that they're not reelected? Well, I mean, not only do we have politicians that vote against it, you know, we're spending trillions of dollars in subsidies to support the oil and gas industry, you know, that is directly contrary to these goals of um, eliminating fossil fuels. So, you know, we have a long way to go with this, you know, um, but it's encouraging to me because the economics are shifting so fast. Um, we see it here in Texas. Renewable energy is cheaper than fossil fuel energy and that is that gap is only going to grow as um time passes so we are going to get off of fossil fuels there's, there's an inevitability of that as we got off whale oil right but the the question is how that happens and how much damage is done my guest on today able to make that transition my guest on today's leonard lopez at large is jeff goodell g-o-o-d-e-l-l -L. his latest book his seventh is The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet, published by Little Brown. 
this is WBAI 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. A number of your other books have also been about related issues. But what role has the United Nations attempted to take in dealing with this problem? Because it's a global problem. It is a global problem. Um, you know, and, you know, the United Nations has, you know, for 40 years now been, you know, um, there's been various treaties. The, you know, Kyoto Protocol was famously um, uh, came together in, in the 90s. Um, you know, there's been a, a lot of attempts to get a kind of build a global consensus around um, reducing, fo cutting fossil fuel emissions. I don't want to say reducing, I mean, cutting fossil fuel emissions quickly. And there's been a lot of kind of progress in that. I've been to a number of these negotiations, um, inclu including Paris in 2015, which was a real benchmark in, you know, commitments from countries to reduce fossil fuel emissions and notably also to help the rich country for the rich countries to help the poorer countries adapt to the changes that are already happening. Well, Paris, but, which relies know, very much on tourism, has had a number of real problems with heat. Right, right. But the 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 problem is, you know, there's a lot of really good talk about this, and you know, it's and there hasn't when the follow up has not as strong as it. You know, it's happening, but it's happening slowly, and um, we need it to happen quickly. And so, um, you know, these negotiations, there's no force of law behind them. They're all essentially well. Uh, I was going to ask you about your own travels, Jeff. <laughs> you, you went to well, the Sonoran Desert with a volunteer and left food and water for migrants. Um, a lot of migrants have died trying to make the, the passage across the border, uh, killed by heat. Yeah, I mean, first of all, let me say I'm sorry about the unstable uh, connection here. Um, now it sounds great. This is the best. <laughs> I, you know, I, I do think it's heat. Um, uh, yes, I, I, so I, I, you know, I, I spent some time um, in this area of Arizona called the Devil's Passage, which is a um, well-known area where where migrants pass through on their way into the U.S. and and it's a particularly kind of, um, you know, I wanted to go there because I wanted to see and feel and understand what what it's like for people. We talked earlier about Sebastian Perez, the farm worker that I wrote about who ended up dying of a heat stroke in, in Oregon and, and what they have to go through to get to America. And and this sort of um, hellscape of, of heat that they pass through. And it was a very, very spooky place. And and it was, you know, I had to be, I was warned not to, you know, be careful where I step because I might step on human bones as Ooh. we were, as we were hiking through there. So many people, people die. And to me, it was very moving uh, and very tragic moving because, you know, you had to want to come to America really badly to make this passage sure. through here. I mean, I was out there for three hours and, you know, I felt like I was going to die. And, you know, these people who come through there go for seven, have to pass through a basically 70 mile section. But it also just shows you the, you know, incredible vulnerability of, of heat. You know, these, the, this is a boneyard, um, uh, this area because, 
they get the people who are passing through they only have so much water they only have so much protection from the heat and they get part way into the desert and there's nowhere to go and they die and um you know and then we a, expect them to work our fields in the heat exactly exactly you know and it, it's you know and it's our border situation is tragic on so many levels right and so messed up on in so many ways that we can't even begin to talk about all that here but one of the, one of the things that i felt most powerfully tragic there was that the border patrol and security is deliberately set up to funnel migrants through this devil's passage area in other words the the, the way the walls are are built you know to the degree that there's some of those trump walls there and the way that the surveillance and security works it's all designed to funnel these migrants um through this devil's passage area in other words deliberately throwing them into this sort of valley of hellish heat um, if they want to come to the United States. And I found that to be just, um, you know, so disturbing and heartbreaking in so many ways. What about some of your other experiences? Didn't you encounter a hungry polar bear on Baffin Island? <laughs> I did. I'm happy to talk about the polar bear. It's one of my favorite heat stories, you know, because, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the the heat is not just something that that you know affects us humans it's not just about whether you know we can air condition our our lives or not every living thing is affected by heat and i know you know polar bears are were or have been this kind of poster child for you know global warming and there's been a lot of backlash kind of against that you know from environmentalists who say oh it's not just about polar bears and all that and it's true but it's also about polar bears and I happened to go on a six-week um, cross-country ski trip uh, through the very remote uh, areas of Baffin Island, which has among the highest population of polar bears um, in the world. And it was a very spooky experience because, you know, we camped every night on the ice. And when you're laying on the ice in polar bear country, you're like just like a hot dog laying out there and there's uh, no protection and, you know, you're vulnerable. And... To make a long story short, we were near the end of our trip stalked by um, a hungry polar bear, uh, a mother polar bear who had two cubs. Um, the ice had melted um, more quickly than usual that spring. And the ice is um, the flow edge of the ice where it meets the water is is how polar bears hunt for seals. And if, the, if that flow edge retreats too quickly, they can't hunt for seals and they have nothing else to eat. And so, so they look for campers and hikers like myself. Um, and I had a polar bear encounter um, on the last day where I we heard a noise outside the tent. I unzipped the tent and there was a polar bear charging um, into towards our tent. And she stopped about six feet from me and looked me and stood up on her back legs and looked me in the eye. And I looked her in the eye and, she you know, if she wanted to eat me, she could have. But um, luckily, this was a hungry polar bear who was also a generous polar bear. Um, mm -hmm. And she, after some making some noises and things, turned around and, and headed the other way. In the, just a, the minute or two we have left, uh, are we doomed? We are not doomed. Uh, and I and I'm one of my things that I'm most trying to talk about when I would talk about this book is this, you know, this binary conversation that we've gotten ourselves into is like are we doomed or are we not 
Uh, I think the whole premise of that is a is a, a kind of false premise. I think that we are in a very serious situation. We, the scope and scale of the changes that we're bringing on to us, uh, to ourselves in in this world, uh, because of the burning of fossil fuels and putting CO two to the atmosphere, cannot be overstated. And before we talk about solutions, of which there are many. We have to think about, we have to realize what we're doing. And this is not just the sort of civilizational equivalent of a broken ankle. We are facing a fundamental, deeply existential um, changes that will affect everything about how we live, where we live, and how long we live. And Jeff, I that have said, to leave however, that. there's lots of hope that I meet, you know, uh, people who are working on this, who are passionately devoted to thinking differently about how we create energy, how we create cities, how we how we live, how we eat, that in really inspires me. I've been writing about climate change for 20 years. People say, why aren't you an alcoholic living in the basement, depressed about the fate of humanity? And it's because I think that this is a, a, a moment where there's so much change possible and, the, uh, and that we're on the verge of not... Um, not just uh, facing these catastrophes, but building a better, healthier, um, and cleaner world for and ourselves. Jeff, I have to leave it kids. there. Jeff Goodell, the book, The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet, published by uh, Little Brown. It's been a great pleasure talking with you, and I'm sorry for some of the technical difficulties. But um, I have to uh, end the show, and I'm joined now by uh, our program director, Linda Perry Barr, I was saying before we came back on that we are going through a rough time here at WBAI, and so we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by giving us a call. I actually adore what Jeff said, that <laughs> he could be a pessimist and <laughs> sit in the basement being drunk, but instead he's an optimist. Now, this is a person who knows what's going on. What we've been experiencing in the last week or so is just incredible. I was out there in the traffic over the weekend and also last weekend driving through torrents and torrents of rain. And you all know what happened upstate New York and also uh, in Vermont and other places with climate change. So maybe people will start to really understand and believe not our people, but, you know, others will understand the impact of climate change. And it's one of the reasons that Leonard's show is so, so important. You can sit there in your car and you can listen to Leonard. You can go to your smartphone and you can listen to Leonard. You can listen on your radio and in your home or out on your patio, and you can hear... Or in a podcast. On a podcast, you can hear all of these wonderful interviews. Are we offering the book? Uh, we are offering the book. Uh, I mentioned it earlier. Anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now can receive a copy of this book, The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet by Jeff Goodell. Uh, to get it, make that call right now, 212-209-2950, or go online to give to wbai.org. That's 212 212- 
209-2950 or give in the number 2, WBAI.org. Well, and we I also hope, hope yeah. that people will consider becoming sustaining members, what we call BAI buddies. Yes, I hope people will become BAI buddies. We're going to do another push for BAI buddies. But right now, um, this is a, a wonderful author, a New York Times bestseller, who um, critics say you won't see the world the same after you read this book. The heat will likely, <laughs> will kill your first, what is it, what the exact title is? <laughs> the heat will kill you first. Uh, life and death on a scorched planet. Well, we have to do something. We're sitting here in WBAI's studios where the air conditioning is not functioning. Yeah. We're sitting here in WBAI's studios where our ops uh, staff here, our engineers, and also volunteer in the back, uh, Matt Maza, need to empty buckets. It's like bucket duty of water that's pouring in so that the air conditioner keeps going. We are really on a shoestring here at WBAI, so we are imploring you right now to go to your pledge, uh, go, to, go to your phones, and give us a call and help WBAI survive. I know on the subways, when I go home from the station and it's, um, it's rush hour, there's really no rush hour anymore at six or five o'clock because people have left the city or they're gallivanting around or they're staying home because it's too hot. Well, if you're staying home, if you're listening to your radio, if you're working from home, help us out here at WBAI where it's a time when, uh, you know, money is tight for many people. The cleaning person here who comes in uh, every week or so hasn't been paid. Other people, we have other bills that have not been paid. We need your support. 212-209-2950. Say yes. I'll become a buddy for Leonard Lopate Show. Lopate at large. I'll become a WBAI buddy. A sustaining, a sustaining member, member, which allows us to plan for the future, whether you become a member for $10 a month, $15, $20, $25, whatever you can feel comfortable with for as long as you feel comfortable. And that allows us, as I said, to plan for the future. And that's really important right now because we're pretty much day day to day. It's really hand to mouth <laughs> is, what it is what it is. So 212-209-2950. Say that you want to get Jeff Goodall's book, uh, The Heat Will Kill You First, a wonderful looking book and all the information that you received today. Ice at the end of the world. Oh my goodness. Uh, <laughs> I, I could see reading this in an air-conditioned setting. 212-209-2950 for a $50 contribution. You can get a copy of the book and uh, the $50, really. I, I believe that he contributed books to us, and the $50 goes to WBAI. And we need your support. And it's tax-deductible. And it's tax-deductible. We only have another minute left. I'd like to see those phones lit up. 212-209-2950. If you appreciate the various programs that are on WBAI. Uh, coming up uh, very soon is going to be Dr. Kamal Kakai at 2 o'clock in about another minute. And then um, a new program, the Health Forum with Dr. Deckel and Kareen Fanari at 2.30. And then other programs throughout the day and throughout the evening. So we need you right now, 212-209-2950. Leonard, well, we hope that uh, you can join us again tomorrow when my guest will be Jane M. Spinak discussing her new book, The End of Family Court. We try to deal with important issues here, and we 
Hope that you'll help us keep on doing this. We'll see you tomorrow. This is listener-sponsored WBAI New York. Once again, 212-209-2950. Thanks for your attention and your support. Thank you.